Hi, I'm Lucas James. And I'm Jordan Ross. And we're the co-hosts of How to Scale an Agency. After scaling our own agencies to over $185,000 per month in sales and working with agencies doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue like Hawk Media and Neil Patel, we've made this show to interview the top digital marketing agency owners and highlight the fastest ways to scale your agency. If you'd like to join the best digital marketing agency community on the planet and let us help you scale, go to twiz.io to sign up today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of How to Scale an Agency. I'm on with the co-founder of Gluey, Christian Brown. He's also in the newest class of Forbes 30 Under 30, pretty remarkable entrepreneur. He's on for the second time on our podcast. I remember interviewing him last year and hearing all the incredible things he's been working on for, I believe, over a decade, right, Christian? Because you've been doing entrepreneurship for a long time, you said, like even in high school or something like that. Just turned 25 this year. So yeah, I mean, at 15 was when it started. That was when I got my first iMac and I was like, all right, it's time to go. So yeah, we'll call it a decade. I mean, what I was doing at 15 certainly does not compare, but it was the foundation. That's awesome, man. And what was that for people who didn't listen to the other episode? You know, what was the foundation do you feel that led you to now accomplish these things? Oh, okay. Here, we're going to give it, we're going to attribute it right to one thing and it was Tumblr. So before there was Instagram, there was Tumblr, which was like, pre-CSS, HTTP, um, like web-based social. And it was like, how can you build the coolest, funkiest page? And how can you be the most aesthetic? So I would build a bunch of those and um, basically just try to like build up followers there and like sell products on there and then build brands that I would just like route all the promo via Tumblr. And then it turned into Instagram and YouTube and all that. And it was just name of the game, build stuff, sell stuff, use social. That's awesome. Where do you think that drive for you comes from? What was the source of that? Just Uh, wanted to do it? Anything? Oh, I think I saw a lot of people doing it. So I was looking at, this is going to sound crazy because I was so young, like Tyler, the creator, um, the rapper, artist, musician, him and his crew were out in LA and they were like just building a brand off everything they were doing. And I was like, wait, this is so cool. Like they are cool and they're making products based on that. And then they're launching those and just scaling them online. Then they build stores and stuff. I'm like, wait, this isn't that hard. And I think I was just very close to a lot of inspiration. Um, it felt very like readily accessible to me and I made it very attainable. And so I just used a lot of that and was like, why, why you know, invest in everything else when I can invest in, you know, myself, my friends, all that and build something for us. And so that was a lot of it from the core. So can you share a little bit about how that led to Gluey? Yeah. Yeah. Really cool story and and great timeline and all that stuff. So going back from like the Tumblr days into like the next phase of social, which is like Instagram, YouTube, all that, um, that really led me to want to get out of the small town of Massachusetts that I was in. And like the internet was and like social was that first layer of like, oh, there's other stuff out there. And so that led me to want to just like experience more and see more. And so I had a bunch of friends through Instagram, like all over the world, people I talked to online. And like, mm-hmm. they were equally as good of friends, right in my eyes than my friends in real life were. And I was like, wait a second. Okay, so like, I can bridge this gap by literally just like going places and meeting people. So I spent a lot of time in New York, um, meeting a lot of friends from literally from Instagram. And then that led to us hanging out a lot in LA and working with like a lot of different creators. At the time I was building my brand, okay. Um, and it was literally just okay worldwide and existed on site and we built physical products and like digital stories and stuff like that. 
And I was like, why don't we just use our friends and our network to like run all the the marketing and promo, et cetera. So basically just grabbed everyone we knew, spent a lot of time in LA working with creators. Um, and then that's when I met one of my best friends, Dylan, who was working on like some larger scale campaigns at the time with a few creators um, and just really seeing things from the managerial side. And, you know, I just tried to jump in wherever I could. And I was studying in Chicago um, at this point, and I'd go out to LA all the time. And it's like, wait, how can we take the business acumen and what we're learning in school, which was for me, PR, advertising and marketing, and how do we apply that into like what we envisioned to be the new era of advertising, which was influencer marketing, social, running stuff through Instagram, TikTok, all those channels. And so we were really just like, involved i would say and so one-to-one interactions are great but technology is really cool and scalable functionality is way cooler and so we set forth to build um our brand and creator platforms and ecosystem that would allow for brands to work with creators and transact with creators at scale and then on the creator side a, a way for them to find more brand deals monetize their following and grow symbiotically with like a piece of technology to house it all so I love that. And I love hearing that story. This is a little bit of a selfish, selfish question because um, it's something I'm currently going through with my uh, business partner thinking through. And, you know, you have you have the wisdom of, of doing this for a long time, which is really helpful and probably has a lot of context. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are also maybe considering this, especially if they're thinking about going into SaaS, because a lot of agency owners are, mm-hmm. which is... Um, the whole raising money versus non-raising money thing, like uh, I think you guys raised, right? For Gooey yep. or when do you recommend people do that? Like, do you recommend that they do it uh, like early on or do you think like yourself building those entrepreneurial skills and then feeling like in a, you know, was it kind of building up to a certain point where you said, hey, I, I feel like I have enough experience in my belt. I'm going to go and raise money now. I have this really awesome opportunity. I'm going to pursue like, how do, how, how do you recommend people think through that? Because a lot of people come to me and they're like, I want to raise money. And I try to give them advice, but I haven't actually raised any money yet. So I, I, I have no real advice to give them. Um, right. But I'd be curious to hear what you uh, think about this whole conversation. So raising money, going to bat, like doing all that, right, is, I don't know, it should be everyone's most exciting time of um, an entrepreneurial journey. And I think that it's such a case-by-case basis. There's no one right answer. If you look through 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, the amount raised per industry varies drastically. AI boom that happened last year, billion dollars in raise, right? And then years before, um, we were in 2020 at the time, raising the creator economy um, was seeing a lot of light in the raise space. And now things like machine learning are seeing a lot of light in the raise space. And so um, historically, your companies like fintech, those have had their booms, real estate has had its booms and stuff like that. So I think that when it really breaks down, you need to look at what is your value prop? What are you raising for? And then what is your solution? And how is it scalable? And if you can really answer all of those pieces, and you're ready to go with a pitch deck, and you're really ready to sell your soul to it, then you're just about ready to raise. But I think that if you don't need to, Right. If you're looking at a raise as like, oh, we just want a boatload of cash, that's the wrong way to look at it. You need to look at it. Every dollar that you're going to raise, you need to know how you're going to spend it. And then you need to know how it's going to work, how often you're going to pay people back, how it's going to play out through the long run. And you need to be very budget conscientious the whole way through. And if you aren't ready to do all of that, then I think being able to survive um, 
in a financial ecosystem of your own may be of more benefit, just so in the long run, you don't raise and kind of turn around and say, well, now what? Yeah, and I think what's interesting is, you know, um, I guess the interesting conversation for a lot of the people listening to the show, because we've actually done some polling and the average person who listens to the show is doing like $50,000 a month in revenue, at least part of our community and mm-hmm. things of that nature. And so um, what I am curious about is like that whole conversation of should I raise money, even if it's from like privates and not necessarily mm-hmm. like a VC, like private equity or something, or even just like loan financing or something like that. Um, when you're a company or an entrepreneur or that has already had success and already has cash flow, what is the actual decision making process behind raising versus just bootstrapping? I guess that's really where I'm trying to break it down. Okay. Is like, do you think? Because I'm sure there's there, there's obviously the argument of people being like, if I raise money, I can grab this market, right? And that's the reason I'm doing it because I can I can do it faster. Is that right. the rationale, or is it more like? I need it because I want to build this amazing tech product or what, what do you think is like the best reasons to do it? If you okay, already so let's have break it down. Yeah. So let's break down 50 K a month. You're at 600 K a year. So yeah. 600 K a year is a viable business. Granted, we have to look at, you know, employee costs and costs of doing business and service, all that jazz, but 600 K bringing in is that's a strong amount. So the next question is how much is it going to cost you to double that to 1.2 mil? And then you certainly have to be ready to double down and look at it and say, how do I get to 2.4 mil? Is it staffing? Which a lot of times in the agency space, it's very heavy on staffing. If you're heavy on staffing, you're reliant on the people to do the manpower. And if you're relying on that, you need to rely on sales teams. If you're relying on that, you need to rely on service. And a lot of times that's a much more like human-based allocation of investment. But if you want to look from the technological side of things, if you have a concept, right, going back to your thought on SaaS. So if you do want to build a software, which will act as a service, you need to look at the scalability of it. So how much is it going to cost? Like, what's the portion of your investment that's going to go into technology, engineering, development, infrastructure, cloud storing, et cetera, all the nine that will come with that? Granted, you're going to have to be SOC 2 type 2 compliant one day and scale that through the roof. That's its own beast. But you need to look at the technology side of it, say, what's it going to cost me to build it? And then you need to look at, okay, what, where in the market is there penetration? And then where in the market is there a hole? And then you need to figure out how you can spend the remainder of your allocated funding outside of the technology engineering product. How can you spend that on marketing, sales, CS, whatever other silos you need to penetrate that market and your go-to-market strat? And then from there, scale upwards in it, find your product market fit, and then really start to level it out. Because if you can get product market fit and users are coming in with a strong LTV, and your cost per acquisition is low, and you're actually transacting through on a high frequency, now you're really looking at like raising that initial seed round. And then eventually you can scale that up and say, hey, look, this is very viable. We were once doing 50K a month as an agency, 600K a year. You might be able to 10X that because the software itself might do the work. Now you're up to 500K, 6 mil a year. Now you're ready for a Series A. But if you don't see the scale and the scale isn't there and you're not going to be able to project like, okay, we're going to go grab this portion of the market, whether it's big or small, and then we're going to do X, Y, Z with them to get them on, keep them on through retention, and then actually generate revenue through through it. If you can't get that point to be scalable, and you can't see scale like literally in your head, then it's going to be kind of hard to, going back to my first thought, allocate your funds accordingly. Right. 
And you brought up something really valuable there too, which is an extremely hot topic as well amongst digital marketers. And you know it is when you get an email from Neil Patel, I got him in his newsletter and it's literally about this, which is uh, no code and AI applications. So did you did you build it with no code or did you build it with like like normal traditional route, like in terms of the tech stack? Like did oh, you- yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Did you yeah. Build it? we did not take a low code, no code uh, perspective at all. So okay. that was a decision we made from the jump two years ago when we begin we began um, our repo and okay. still to this day we have little to nothing on low code no code. There's obviously a build versus buy to everything. I think yeah. in our case, what we were working with was the intent to build like a very scalable ecosystem with like an infrastructure that could pertain to various use cases with lots of users and different user types. And so yeah. we wanted to look at that and say, you know, part of our allocation of investment is in technology, engineering, development, product, infrastructure. And that one day will be um, licensed IP that we own and is a part of like what our value is within the industry. So with that in mind, we wanted to take as much of the pie as we could. And we thought in order to do so, we wanted to just lay the, the pavement foundation and build the house on it. And also, I mean, it makes sense because if you were to sell one day to some really massive company, like, I don't know, mm-hmm. LinkedIn buys you guys out, you're able to fit into their tech stack a lot easier. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's talk about Gluey, like specifically what it does, why um, it exists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for the average agency owner doing $60,000 a month in revenue, like someone listening to the show, uh, how can they use it, right? What, what are some yep. use cases they can use it for? So Gluey at its core um, is a web, iOS, Android application for brands and creators. And so there's two sides to that coin, brands and creators. We'll start with brands. Brands being businesses, marketers, agency owners, agency team members, et cetera. So brands can join our platform and can launch campaigns with the intent of working with influencers. So let's say that I have my trusty AirPods here that I'm holding. And let's say that I'm a new, you know, on my AirPods, I have this case. So let's say that I want to scale up um, and sell 10,000 cases. And I want to do so through TikTok marketing. So what you can do is you can go and create a campaign. It will take no more than two minutes. You will title it, you know, AirPod TikTok case. And from there, you'll add photos and inspiration. Um, You'll talk about the product and you'll outline what you want from each creator and influencer. And then if you want them to have a minimum of 100,000 followers, they need to be female on the West Coast. You can identify that in the campaign creation process. You outline everything, you press launch, and then it gets deployed into our system. And then on the creator side, let's say that you are that creator, female, West Coast with 100K followers. You'll get a notification right to your phone that you match for a new campaign. You can see how much the brand is willing to pay. And then you can apply directly in the app where you then submit your basically why me statement. So you pitch yourself to the brand. And typically within three minutes, creators start applying to brand deals. Um, And of our 10,000 plus creators in our platform, there are quite literally thousands that are working on a consistent basis with brands to transact, to create content, to deploy it to their own socials, and to give it to brands as UGC to own in perpetuity, license it out, using their own ads for their clients. Um, And so it is that end-to-end system. So for an agency owner, let's say that you're working with three, five, eight, ten different clients, and the majority of them are in the e-com space, 
uh, direct-to-consumer, consumer packaged goods, etc. Well, you can use Gluey as your main source of influencer marketing as an mm. all-in-one shop, and you can actually launch multiple campaigns for multiple of your clients, and then however you want. If it's a whitelist type play, um, if you want to bring more creators onto Gluey, we'll work directly with you to ensure that all of your wants and needs are handled so you can get the most amount of influencers for your clients. You can manage it all in-house with Gluey. You can download and export your PDF reports to share with your clients. You can own all of the content in perpetuity in our asset library. You can chat right. directly with the creators and you can scale your own programs. And if you're not currently yeah. using influencer marketing as a service offering and you would like to do so, we have the all-in-one house to do it. So you can get onboarded onto Gluey. We can launch it up with you. And then from there, you can sell the service yourself. And then we will forever be the technology that backs your solution. So a lot of the, uh, could, could you use this? I know, I know a lot of the use cases are uh, for e-commerce and, uh, you know, SaaS influencers are just maybe doing, maybe having an agency doing work for their clients. Um, but do you see any use case for like a service business? Like could a, could a agency potentially use an influencer to help promote their own business to get like traffic to their website, maybe get email opt-ins for like a AI type free guide or something on how to improve your marketing with AI? I don't know. Like, how, yeah. is, it, is it anything that's like lead driven too? Or is it um, mostly should people think of this as uh, mainly uh sales for their clients and offering it for influencer marketing to like e-commerce brands. Yeah, more on the latter. Um, so the B2B space with influencer marketing is a little um, less elementary, I'll call it, because B2B, there's a, a deeper level of sophistication. Uh, it's typically larger learning curves for said influencer to actually understand everything going on with the business itself in order to be a true affiliate of sorts. And so with that in mind, unless there was a lot of work done by the brand to create a very cool referral system or a lead gen program that is going to live on a specific link and then it has kickbacks and coupons, something like that, then a lot of times it may get bogged down in the noise. Um, unless right. you wanted to work with like a creator to make UGC and they're showing the value of your agency, you could absolutely do so. But for general lead gen, it is relatively difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it's the answer you wanted to hear, but that's the that's no, the no, no, no. I mean, it's better to be specific, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think like if you're solving a very specific problem for a specific vertical, and I know it's not even a, a niche solution because it's all of e-commerce could be mm-hmm. great for this, right? So, but I mean, it's better to be that way, right? Sometimes if yep. you're too many things to too many people, it just doesn't work as well. So, I think it's actually super helpful. Um, and there's a lot of people who do, including myself, who do marketing for e-commerce companies. So, Mm -hmm. uh, they're listening to this podcast. What, how does the pricing work again? It's, uh, is it based on campaign or is it a subscription? Yeah. So there's two layers to it. So going back to when building SaaS, um, yeah, I'll give a quick story here is that we spent so much time figuring out the right price point, especially in our go to market play. And right. for anyone that ever does want to build SaaS, being able to identify competitors in the space, really understand where you want to lay on that grid of like high performance, high value, low cost, or the inverse of that. Um, 
that will really get you to the right place. Never shoot too high, never shoot too low. That's my little tidbit of info there. But how it works um, on our side is we do have our like true traditional PLG method, which is where brands can sign up for free, launch unlimited campaigns, transact with creators. That's, <coughs> excuse me, that is free to use, though we do have our percent service fee um, that the platform will take. Whereas if you want to minimize that percent service fee per transaction, you can join any of our three tiers, which start at just $49 a month and go all the way up to $3.99 a month. And the different tiers offer different access to the platform, um, deeper levels of insight and data on each creator and their audience, um, different layers of data points that you can find on your own following as a brand, um, just to right. make sure that everything you're doing is targeted towards a data-driven decision. And that's what we're really set to to provide there. But at the end of the day, you'll always be paying for the engagement with the creator because we are just the technology in the middle there. Right. That's awesome. Um, well, I mean, it's been great interviewing you and uh, for a second time. And I think there's just so many value bombs you just dropped here in terms of uh, scaling the SaaS product, kind of how to think about fundraising, how to think about doing all that. You know, there's a lot of people who are considering it. Um, one of the last questions I want to ask you, because we were chopping it up at the beginning and hey, I'd be remiss not to bring it up which is AI, right? Mm -hmm. You were talking about it. And I just love talking about it. It's awesome. I mean, it's so cool what's happening in the world right now. So how are you guys thinking about AI? Um, I mean, you're kind of a unique position because you're a young guy scaling a company that's funded and basically have the next 10, 20, 30 years to pretty much just play with this stuff. And I feel like you're right at the beginning with the yep. capital needed to actually capitalize on it. And so I feel like, what? how are you thinking about actually scaling this with AI so, potential? So AI is a really funny one. Um, I think that where I sit, right, being 25 right now, I think I can relate this back to like the iPhone, right? Because I was the last era, era, generation, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Last era of people. Gen Z. Yeah, but Gen Z in itself, like within Gen Z, I was the last like group or age group to truly grow up like from a very young age without an iphone like i got an iphone oh yeah yeah like i got the littlest teeny iphone 5 like the beginning of high school it had doodle jump snapchat wasn't out <laughs> I yet <love> that. <laughs> um a lot of like those apps weren't a thing like i remember even my third year of high school i was the only kid in my grade i think that had instagram or like made my second year of high school right it was less adopted then and so we were the last generation to like have those like young adolescent memories pre iPhone. And funny right. enough, I'm like the first generation out of not like having AI, ChatGPT, et cetera, in the university experience. And so earliest on, I, I kept a very, very heavy eye on how AI was being adopted within Gen Z. And it instantaneously took over the university experience. So, like, everyone that I know that is in school, um, all of their syllabuses are either like generated with AI or they're blocking AI or you can use it at this school, but you can't use it at this school. And I, I got to learn a lot of use cases of how it was working towards research um, and actually just spitting out true inputs. And I thought that was really cool to see. And that, that really broke it down for me where it's like, okay, people are wondering very simple things. And AI is simply just like GPT is casting a net and then it's just pulling the net back in and then it's sifting through what it knows is right. And it's just spitting back out of the net, all the right answers for very simple prompts. And then you have Dali, 
which is more on the image side of things. So I've seen a lot of that. That has run rampant on social. AI memes are everywhere you look. Um, and so we have a text element. We have a image generation element. Um, and then soon we will have like a true good video element. And so like those are real components that work well with our business and organization. And so we kind of looked at that and said, okay, that, that triangle exists. Um, and then thinking about how it'll play out within the industry itself, and then I'll get into how we would want to implement it. But um, this Monday, just days ago, Sam Altman from um, OpenAI had basically their like flagship summit and he got up and mm -hmm. he just said like, hey, everyone is building within this. What we want to do is open up the API and we want to make the app store. And so if you look back in time, when Apple first launched their app store, they just opened it up for developers, API access and said, everyone build within this ecosystem. They now make $4.2 billion a year in in-app purchases. Apple takes 20% of that. Apple mm -hmm. made a nearly a billion dollar play just by opening up the app store. They killed out Google. They shut out all the other players. And if you look back at other people that did this very well, Amazon actually did this with Alexa. So Alexa was first just made in home. Mm -hmm. And then you look at Amazon Alexa back in the day, you're like, this thing is kind of stupid. It just sits on the countertop and it's like a radio. And then through their ecosystem yeah. thinking plays, they level that up. And then they allow for you to talk into Amazon. And it was no longer than just music. And they're like, okay, well, now Amazon Alexa needs to charge the home. And so now Amazon Alexa can change your lights. Then they're like, wait, we want to open this up to developers for the APIs. So they, too, opened up basically an app store. People started developing within Amazon Alexa. And now Amazon Alexa is getting all this data and feedback from all the apps that exist. And then you layer it up. And now Amazon Alexa can do everything in your house. And now it knows everything about people. And now Amazon takes that and now they have self-driving cars that they're using that AI data through machine learning to implement in. Yeah. So like Apple makes an app store. The iPhones become the most popular thing in the world. They make $4.2 billion. Amazon Alexa uses machine learning and AI in their simple device. Now they have self-driving cars. Now OpenAI launches their app store just days ago, and now they're opening the doors for all of the crazy AI startups that got a bajillion dollars in funding this year. Now they're either going to be yep. destroyed because the open API, or they're going to be able to wrap, play in, build SaaS upon it, exist and grow revenue funnels and streams within the GPT OpenAI app store. And now it's going to open the door for companies like ours to low code, no code, jump in, and going back to what I said in the beginning with the triangle, we can say, well, we need content generation ideas, image generation ideas, and obviously at the end is going to be video generation ideas, those videos in form of ads or whatever it may be. Now we can take all of the best social media posts, whether they are written, whether they are static images or videos, we can actually teach through low code, no code through GPT four and five. We can now teach that what a good ad is for a brand in each industry. And then from there, we can take that app that lives in the App Store, implement it into our own functionality wheelhouse, and now allow for brands to say, hey, I'm a new sunglass brand. I would love some ideas and inspiration on how I should have this creator make this post. Now we're going to have a library of what a good sunglass brand campaign looks like. And now a brand can go in and just run through different filtrations of what the, the AI machine learning is kind of spitting out. And then we have a whole slew of different ways that we can build recommendation engines on this um, to say that if you are a sunglass brand located in California, you might want to work with influencer ABC because we know that their 
audience is most likely to buy sunglasses from your brand at your price point because of their purchase decision behavior on previous campaigns. Therefore, this creator is better for you by 4% than this creator. So to answer your question, there's tons of ways we can implement it. Fascinating. Um, Tons of ways we have it deep on the horizon, though. Um, It's something we, we hold very near and dear to our hearts because like this is the next phase of innovation, whether it's technological or just in everyday life. And like, I 100% will stand 10 toes down that I knock ChatGPT when people use it to write emails, because I think that's lazy. And I knock it for anyone that's using it in school, because write your own paper. But do I think for true ideation at its simplest form, it is of massive benefit to the greater use of people all day long? I think that's so fascinating. And you know, I don't know, this just came to me and I, I feel like someone has had to say this at some point, but uh, I just haven't heard it yet, which is, um, you know, the whole phrase software is eating the world. Um, I think Mark Andreessen said that, I believe, but I feel like AI is eating software, right? It's like software is eating the world, AI is yeah. eating software. I wonder how this all consolidates, right? Because at a certain point, you have this like army of people yourself, myself, including building so many AI solutions on top of ChatGPT. What happens if ChatGPT can learn all of them and then basically just do everything that, that all these other companies can do? What if there's just one app that replaces all apps, you know? Yeah, it's crazy. But then it's like, what is, the, what's when... the, what is the software founder focus on that? If in 10 years, everything becomes an everything app, you know? I mean, we need Do to we think, just sell beforehand right? like, why? and just like get out, you know? No, I don't think so. Though I think conceptually that will happen, right? GPT and, and yeah. the AIs themselves. True machine learning will just build upon itself, wrap and code up upon itself, and it will just exponentially grow. But at the end of the day, it's like from a, even a governmental um, perspective, why don't monopolies exist? Because they can't, right? Like right. they just, they're not allowed yeah. to exist because of free market. Um, why does not one Mm. social media exist? Because people like individualism and people actually do like the sense of change. It's like why people don't go to the same bar or restaurant every single Friday night because people like to switch it up. And I think that like there will always be a human element to what we do and who we are and the products we work with from a physical sense to a technological sense. I think at the end of the day, there's going to be so many things that exist in a couple of years from now that people are going to be like, I only have 24 hours and I don't necessarily care to spend 18 of them on whatever it may be. Right. TikTok had its moment in social. And then people were like, wait a second. Like, I actually really like Instagram because like, yeah, it's just chill or like, you know, it's it's more calming because it's people I know or people are like, well, I want to just read stuff on Twitter. It's not like there's no everything app, right? Amazon yeah. wants to be it. But at the same time, people that think Amazon is corny or don't like Amazon just don't use it. And that's fine. Right. They still exist. People still go to the grocery store. Yeah. Those things will always exist. Well, Amazon knows people go to the grocery store, which is why they bought Whole Foods. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So. They built a grocery store <laughs> where you actually just need to walk in and walk out. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I mean, um, I guess to your point, then I guess there will end up being like a not an everything app, but maybe just like kind of as there is now to a certain extent in software, just like major companies that do everything, but they can't become a monopoly. So you might have like 
Microsoft has its own everything app. Amazon has its own everything app. Apple has its own everything app. And then, yeah. like you said, they're individual entities, but they basically do everything, but you just choose your own AI. It does everything for you. But legally, we make it so that you can't have one company own everything. So right. it's going to be a fascinating thing. But then that could lead to a pretty good uh, M&A opportunity because maybe yeah. what happens is like a huge consolidation of applications. Maybe what ends up happening is the same way that there's not an, an enormous amount of like railroad companies. I mean, there are a good amount, but not there used to not be as many, right? Like back in the day. Um, and then it, it became more abundant. But like that diversification was limited. You only had a couple, right? Same with like tele, telco companies back in the mm-hmm. day, right? And then it, boom. So maybe we go reverse and we consolidate and there's only a few. And then all the smaller companies who don't end up becoming the behemoths just get bought up and there's just massive like M&A. Who knows? I, 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 mean, I don't know. It's so hard to say. That would even be good too, right? I mean, that would, yeah. as long as the the acquirer is of good standing and, and wants good for the world, which hopefully everyone does, um, then like that, that's not a bad play, right? Like if everyone gets a chance at bat and, and a lot of good entrepreneurs and thinkers and creators and creatives for that matter, get a chance to build something for themselves and, and it can live and breathe in an ecosystem that's powered by not an absorbent amount of infrastructure costs and it lives and exists, right? Like that's cool. That's giving people tools and the ability to grow and and actually execute on what they want. And I think that we're going to see a lot more people leverage these systems in a more, you know, elementary way because they're now able to low code, no code, build an app. And they're able to write copy for their website and generate marketing images. And they're able to do all these things that quite literally take full teams. And I think that that's the power in it is we're giving people the ability to be more creative with more opportunity. Yeah, 100%. Well, thank you, man, for being on the show. Where can people go to sign up if they want to use Gluey? They want to use the software. Yeah, so if you want, if you're a brand manager, brand marketer, agency owner, agency member, anything of that caliber, and you want to create a free account, and try Gluey today, you can head to Gluey.com, which is G-L-E-W-E-E.com, and press the sign up button. And then you can create an account in about two minutes. You can launch your first campaign in another two minutes. And then five minutes following, you'll start to see creators that qualify, that match your criteria, join. Amazing. I got to ask one last question. Where does the name come from? Really good question. Okay, this is a good one. You can see it's all behind me. So yeah. Gluey derives from glue, G-L-E-W, which is a play on glue, G-L-U-E, which is at its core, the adhesion point between two items. So we are the technological adhesion point between brands and creators, and the technology itself powers that. And it's fun. It's a fun spelling. Yeah, exactly. Um, We didn't want to be a one syllable. and We didn't like four letters. And so we wanted to be our own unique two syllable that did not exist in the world, had no SEO, had no nothing, because that was the greatest challenge of it all is build a world out of this word we created. And we've done exactly that, which as a marketer, I mean, that's been one of my greatest moments to date. (laughs) That's like what my whole life is built on. So, you know, I love it. Yeah. Loving, loving the brand, building the brand. It's all amazing. So thank you for being on the show for the second time, Christian, for everybody listening. This has been another episode of how to scale an agency. Again, we had Christian Brown, who is the co-founder of Gluey. 
Go check it out. Go sign up for the software. Use it. And if you're a brand manager or you're an agency who wants to do more for their e-commerce clients, go sign up and see what you think. But thank you, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much.